Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 2. My name is Casey Tigert. I'm your host. I'm an author, a pastor, and spiritual director. Last summer, my wife and I and our daughter took a trip. We were supposed to go to Florida, but at that point in time, the red tide was ravaging the coast of Florida where we were headed. And because of the breathing issues that it caused, we didn't want to be a part of that. So instead, in the middle of August, we went to Phoenix, Arizona. Now, you may be questioning whether I should host a podcast on wisdom, considering we went to Arizona in August, but we went. And I remember one morning, I was in the Hotel Fitness Center listening to one of my favorite podcasts, The Deconstructionists, and they had a guest on. And this guest was talking about how she had written a book about how in faith, in the history of faith, there's a flexibility, not on the key main things, but on the things that are not quite key and not quite main. But the things that we disagree about today, the things that we debate over, and the things that oftentimes we make as key when they really were never intended to be that. So it made me happy when I saw an email from my inbox that said Bonnie Christian was interested in being a guest on my podcast, on this podcast. Her book, A Flexible Faith, is a book about what it means to dialogue with the history of Christianity and to see that there are spaces for us to disagree on more things than maybe we thought possible. In this episode, we're going to talk about not only the flexibility of faith, but how you and I, in this particular time period, wisely exercise the ability to have conversations with people who disagree with us. Uh, From your perspective, uh, if you had to define wisdom, where where would you start? Oh, man, this is even even with the warning that you gave me for this question like two minutes ago. This is very daunting. Um, I feel like I should have some quote from Proverbs or something at the ready. Um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, I would say a certain this isn't a great like concise definition, but I would think of a certain um, element of, of weighing, uh, you know, different inputs, different options, collecting the relevant information and a certain degree of like restraint and interrogation of your own impulses of like, what is it that I, I want to do here? Why do I want to do that? Is that, uh, you know, the, actually the, the, the right and the, um, loving and the wise thing to do, or is it just my own sort of natural inclination? Um, so I would think of sort of a, a judiciousness and a, um, a prudence and a self-examination. Do you, you, so in your book, you talk, uh, the theme I notice a lot is it seems like Augustine is in everything. He's in every conversation, it seems like. And when you talk about that interrogating our impulses, I hear that uh, ordering our loves kind of language. You know, what are the mm. things that matter most? Does that resonate with the way you see wisdom or do you see it differently than maybe our dear friend Augustine did? You know, I'm as much as he is everywhere. I always feel like I'm not as familiar with Augustine as I should be. Um, I actually just quoted him in something I was writing yesterday and it was from a work of his that I have not read in, in whole or even significantly in part. Um, but yeah, I think that that's, that's related. Um, 
again, with the caveat that I'm, I'm not an Augustine expert, though. So, you know, I don't want to wade too far into this and, and totally commit to it and then, you know, find out later. Oh, no, it's totally not what I thought. But yes, I, insofar as I understand it, I think so. What I love about even that exchange, and it's something that's characteristic that I find in your book, Flexible Faith, is that a person can be a, a involved in Christian tradition for most of their life and not have to be an Augustine expert, even though for some of us, you know, they grew up in an evangelical background, especially Augustine's influence is behind just about everything we believe from the way we view scripture to original sin to um, salvation and God's determinism and things like that. What I love is how you talk about uh, a flexibility. It's in the title, so you have to do it. But but what you but what you mean by that is it is theological diversity. Uh, what does that mean? What is theological diversity as far as from your perspective? Yeah. So I would explain it as, um, and I use this example in the this model. I should say in the introduction. Um, if you think of concentric circles, like the Target logo, um, that that we can rank. Uh, different theological questions and debates um, in these different sort of layers of the circle. So they're not, they're not all of equal importance. They're not all of equal um, necessity to our faith. And so, you know, at the core, I would say is, is Jesus, the person of Jesus, not, not our beliefs about him, but, you know, we say this is actually God incarnate. And then you have a very relatively small circle after that of, um, what I labeled dogma. And that's um, very much like the, the definitional beliefs of, of Christianity, sort of the things where if someone said, you know, give me a very brief summary, what is Christianity? It's the sort of things you would say, like, you know, we believe Jesus is God. We believe this is the only way to, to salvation, to be right with God. You know, the, the Bible is our holy book. Um, <clears throat> real basic stuff, something that you might summarize, for example, with the Apostles' Creed, the sort of things that that anyone uh, who, who would call themselves a Christian and agree with, um, sort of in the, the historic Orthodox Church. Um, but that leaves a, a lot of other stuff, and and those questions are important. Um, those questions, you know, matter. They have big big influences on how we understand the stuff in the dogma category and how we think about Jesus and how that influence, like how our faith functions in daily life. Um, but they aren't now and have never been uh, the the line that says, is someone a Christian or not? And so when I say that the faith is flexible, it's not, um, it's not that there's no right answer on these questions. It's not that there's no truth, um, but it's that Christians have disagreed about this. Um, we've disagreed about these things for thousands of years. And it's not up to to me to say, you know, as much as I think I'm I'm right about these questions, it's not up to me to say, well, you're a heretic, you're not a Christian because you disagree with me on this. Bonnie is redefining dogma, redefining doctrine, redefining the things that are core to our faith. This is important for me to hear. And it might be important for you to hear too. And it's important for us to then begin to say, what would I put in each of those circles? What would I consider key and core to my view of the Christian faith? What does the church that I belong to believe is the key and core of my Christian faith? And then what is in that second circle? The things that are important, but that don't determine who's in and who's out. And how do I even function in that role? 
That's Bonnie's hopeful point in this book, is to help us see that there's space. There's space for everybody. What strikes me most about that, about that approach is, the book sets out talking about people who have grown up in faith and have left it because of its rigidity. And the response that you offer to that is to, is to widen the frame. Whereas it seems like many of us have experienced that same, you know, have seen people experience that same sort of restlessness with people leaving the faith. And their response has been to narrow the frame and say, we keep mm-hmm. losing. It's the idea of a gate. Like if, if people keep leaving, then we need a tighter gate or we need, you know, better guards or, or things like that. So what did it take in you? Because we talk about wisdom as interrogating our impulses, which I'm going to I'm going to ride that for a long time. That's really good. Um, What did it take in you to shift? What had to shift in you for you to interrogate your own impulse about how you, how you examined your faith and how you examine it from a perspective of, we have all these people leaving. How do I help them? What was it that took you from Mm -hmm. finding the one route and doubling down versus expanding the field and beginning to show how there is a, there's a wide stream of orthodoxy. I think a a lot of it was just that in the, for several years, especially um, after I graduated from from college, uh, I was going through sort of my own exploration on a number of these issues. Women in ministry was one. Um, The question of of nonviolence was another. And, uh, And so having gone through that, I was aware sort of of the of the importance that it had for, for allowing my own faith to continue to grow and mature. Um, there are <clears throat> some of those questions where I, I would say, you know, coming to a different uh, viewpoint or finding out that there were different viewpoints on this, you know, within the bounds of orthodoxy, it, it never really reached a, a, a crisis point for me, I think. Um, but it, it certainly has been important for, for me staying in the faith, you know, especially in retrospect thinking, you know, if I, if I had never encountered these other perspectives, what would I have had that crisis? It's possible. Um, and so it was just sort of by, uh, to, to some degree happen chance that, that I was able to have like the time and the resources to be able to do that exploration before the crisis hit. But that's not the case for a lot of people. And, and that's, not the case for people that I know. And, and we, I think just in the past couple of days, there's been some articles circulating about, you know, the five top reasons young people leave the church. It's all up in my Twitter feed. Um, and so, yeah, I was thinking about that and thinking about, well, for, for me, having that space to explore really forestalled a lot of angst and, and a lot of like turmoil, spiritual turmoil that could have happened. Um, and so what would be a way to, uh, to help other people have that same space to explore, maybe avoiding that crisis point, or, or even if they've already reached it, having something that, that they, they can use and that they can, um, you know, understand without a lot of deep theological research that most of us don't have time to do. The word that keeps coming to mind as you, as you talk about this is the word humility. It seems like there is a, it takes a humility to be able to say outside of the dogma that sets the foundation, 
there are differences of opinion and to be able to step out of the fold that says, if you don't share mine, you, I can't, you're not a Christian. I think of the quote mm-hmm. by the mystic Meister Eckhart when he, yeah, I'm, I'm really breaking this down, but he basically says, as soon as you say God, you've said not God because of that, of mm-hmm. God's transcendence of our categories and our concepts. And it, talk about how humility has played into this flexible faith journey that you've been on, not only in the book, but it, it, you can tell from reading it, there's a personal aspect to this for you. Well, I, I hope so. And I appreciate that. Um, I think that there's, you know, at, at any point in time, we all think that we're completely right about everything. And that, that makes sense, right? Because if you thought you were wrong about something, you would change your mind on that and then you'd be completely right again. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, thinking you're right about everything. It's just sort of how it is. <clears throat> um, but yeah, I, I think taking in sort of the, the great scope of the church, both, you know, historically and presently around the world, when you see that large scale, it becomes very difficult to say of all the, you know, tens of millions or billions of Christians who have ever lived, I am the one person who got it all right and got it all figured out. Um, I'm sure you may have seen, there's that cartoon that has been around on the internet for a long time. It's like a church history class with all the branches everywhere there's been a split over thousands of years. And then like one tiny spot at the end, the the teacher is saying, and here's where we came along and got everything right. And one of the students answers, Jesus is so lucky to have us. Like we laugh at that because we know it's not true. Like it's probably not true. You know, we want to do our best to, to get the truth and believe the right things. But realistically, the chances that we are the ones who got it a hundred percent right are small. Yeah. In each of the chapters in the book, you, you, take a, you take a core key idea that anybody, no matter how long they've been in the church, will have some kind of familiarity with, whether it's baptism or communion or creation, um, which is in a bigger picture of God's sovereignty and control. And, and you offer the different perspectives that have been had throughout mm-hmm. history. I'm wondering... There's two. I think there is, as I was reading it, I, I thought there are two different ways to approach these perspectives. One is to see them as multiple choices of which you need to pick one or as a continuum to say you may find yourself anywhere within mm-hmm. this range. Is that how it felt to you as you were conveying it or do you see it more as a kind of definitive? I think it depends on the issue. Um there are some where they are more exclusive, you know, like you, you, one or the other, these are clear cut things. You you can't really, um, maybe a, a middle ground doesn't work or, or any sort of overlap doesn't really make sense because they're just two very different things. Um, in other cases, yeah, I do think there's a continuum. Um, and in some cases, even I think you may be able to have, um, sort of a hybrid view of, of multiple categories. Um, I would say, for example, the the questions about like hell and the destiny of the unevangelized, how those things sort of function and shake out. In those cases, I think a, a hybrid or continuum view are very possible. Um, on the other hand, something like um, 
the age at which baptism is appropriate, right? Like either you're doing infants or you're doing, you know, probably sometime post 10 or 12 years old. There's, 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 that one's difficult, more difficult to sort of say, like, I don't think there's a strong crowd out there for like the three and four year old baptisms or that, or that are doing both. um, Right. Yeah. You know, certainly some traditions that do infant baptism will baptize adult converts, but for the most part, you're going to be one or the other. So, yeah, I think it, it varies depending on the issue. And and how does the – one of the things I noticed as I was reading was how the church discussed and uh, cultivated and nuanced and has talked about this. And I love that you highlight people who were current within, the, within that particular issue talking about it, whether it's Athanasius or Cyril or some of these – some of these – or Cyprian, I'm sorry, some of these really significant mm-hmm. – um, theological minds, but I also know that they're in a culture. And so what's interesting to me is, as I was reading it, I thought, right now, the chapter that you write on the role of genders seems mm-hmm. like it's so much, it has so much leverage and, and potency, maybe because of where we are in a cultural moment. Did, it, did you sense that as you were writing them? Like, there's some of these that, you know, we're talking about the sovereignty of God. That's always going to be a question. But some of these feel like, oh, there's a, there's a fire yeah. here. Yeah, it's, um, and I would say it's more in, and this is not a great characterization, but I've not come up with a better one, more in sort of the, the lifestyle chapters right now, things like the roles of women, um, gay marriage, engagement with politics, um, even, you know, violence and wealth, these sorts of things I think are very pressing right now. Um, these questions of like, okay, but how should we functionally live on a day-to-day basis as, as Christians? Um, and yeah, I was, I was very aware of that, especially with the, the gay marriage chapter. Like I think I even mentioned it in the book, like I would be writing and I would notice like my shoulders are getting more and more tense and then they're like up by my ears and it's like, wait, you're just in a library writing. So there's going to be time to revise and, you know, get this right. Um, but I, I sort of had to laugh because, so I, I'm a member of a Mennonite church. And of course, 500 years ago, people are getting burned at the stake over like baptism. And now it's like, oh, baptism, you know, that's not controversial. Like, you know, you want to figure out what you think about it, but it's not that big of a deal. And so I just sort of wonder, you know, like 500 years from now, are they going to have a similarly sort of like, eh, you know, just figure out your viewpoint attitude about these things that are like so fiery for us at the moment. You obviously had to, and I say obviously because I think, as you said, there are some of these chapters where we don't really, it's not like there's a spectrum or a continuum. We we probably swim in one or the other, you know, Mm -hmm. lanes within the stream. My daughter's a swimmer, so all of a sudden I'm doing all these swimming imagery. It's like, we swim in the same pool, but it's different lanes. Um, but obviously you had a perspective on each one, uh, something that was unique to yourself. And what I found fascinating was how little I felt like that was, you weren't hedging your bets and you weren't, you know, favoring one over the other to the detriment of the writing. So in responding to this narrow and rigid faith that you're noticing, uh, you offer multiple perspectives, which meant you had to dive into one's and offer, we were chatting about this before we started, offer reading uh, from people that mm-hmm. maybe you would profoundly disagree with. What did that, sh- what did that form in you? How did that, 
how did that affect your spiritual formation in the process of, of this whole writing period? It was, it was interesting because there wasn't like one consistent way in which my assumptions about the views that I don't hold were challenged. So with some of them, um, and I think for example, of like sort of the Wesleyan take on sanctification, which is this idea that, you know, in, in some sense we can become perfect, you know, here on earth after salvation. Um, I found that like my ideas were about how that, that works were, were pretty caricatured and I, I didn't know that much about it. And it is a much more nuanced, it's not like, Oh, you're just going to be great all the time. Like, um, it is a more nuanced perspective and reading like, especially Wesley's John Wesley's original, um, sort of the way he characterized it was, was very helpful in seeing that, uh, as a more, I frankly didn't think of it as a super serious perspective before. And I was wrong about that. Um, and other things, there were times when uh, I would be writing it up and I'd be like, is this really, like, am I saying this fairly? Is it really this bad? <laughs> um, and times when you see me quoting from an original source, not always, but sometimes it's the case that it was because I was like almost trying to, to demonstrate to myself, like, no, this is really the position, like, I'm going to quote it from the person who, who thought of it so that we all know that it's fair and that's what they said. And this is not just like my own negative biases. So, um, yeah, it was, it, I think it, it, the whole, the experience as a whole encouraged me and not that I, you know, didn't want to do this anyway, but encouraged me or reiterated to me the importance of like going and looking at what the, the the people, the Christians who have espoused a certain view actually said themselves as opposed to just listening to secondhand accounts. Um, and in some place, places that will, you know, really nuance your view and give you new respect for it. And in other places, it'll be like, oh, my word, I can't believe this is the, the actual thing. It's interesting. I grew up in a Nazarene church. And so we, mm-hmm. we do, we would more often identify with the Wesleyan view of sanctification. Mm-hmm. And, and it was always an interesting conversation because the, mm-hmm. the best objective to that sanctification is what you see when you get up in the morning and look in the mirror. And uh, it was always, especially for college guys, like I'd wake up at, after mm-hmm. having two hours of sleep and look in the mirror and go, I don't think Wesley's right. That just doesn't, <laughs> either that or I completely missed it and, you know. I'm I'm not quite on the path yet. But what was interesting to me about that chapter is, so each chapter you also invite a, an interview at the end and introducing us to different people who are operating in different traditions. And just after the close of the sanctification chapter, you talk to a, a man named Armando, who's from <laughs> uh, what's called a base community. Can you talk about that a little bit and why that felt like the right place for the conversation with him? Oh, man, I don't I have to say, I, I don't know if I can remember exactly why I placed, um, you know, which interview where. Um, but so base communities are, you know, these these. We almost would want to call them house churches or, or small groups in an American context, but it's I think it's more robust than that. Um He's in in, uh, El Salvador. They exist elsewhere in Latin America um, and in in other outside of Latin America as well. I had an interview lined up with another base community member from, I want to say, 
Nigeria. And unfortunately, that fell through. But the, the base communities uh, are, are very much drawing on liberation theology and sort of the idea of God has this, um, it's called the preferential option for the poor. And so uh, it's, it's very much about uh, <clears throat> doing, doing a life together and, and working for economic justice together and ensuring that no one within your community is going and is living in want. Um, and so again, as I said, I, I don't know that I can remember specifically why I placed things where I did, but now that you draw this connection between um, this interview and that chapter, I do think that there's, it is a good fit. I, I compliment myself on this placement. Um, because the, the, the base community is so so focused on um, really integrating faith into into your life in, a, in such a robust, like, day in and day out sense, like it's not just this one-time thing that you do once a week. Um, and of course that, that sort of integration is crucial no matter, I think, what view of sanctification you take. Yeah. And I also felt, I mean, I didn't know why you did it, which is good to know, but one of the things that immediately occurred to me is how the inner and the outer in the process of sanctification, we also, we often think of that as moral or ethical, you know, do you drink or do you not? Do you swear or do you not? But then we often ignore the bigger picture of justice and how the base communities are addressing that, you know, whether it's through liberation theology or whether it's with the spiritual practices of their communities. But to, to put that conversation in the conversation of sanctification says, this is not just about your inner experience with Jesus and whether or not you cuss. It's, it's also addressing bigger systemic things that are happening around us, which I thought was just fascinating because we don't, we don't make that connection. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I love saying that if the good news is not good for everybody, it's not good for anybody. And so it's great to have a, you know, a spiritual experience, but if it doesn't address systemic poverty, racism, and injustice, um, I just don't know what, what good that is necessarily. It may make us feel better, uh, and it may lead to change to, to do the Wesley thing. It may be the or the non-Wesley, then do the process thing, the progress thing. But uh, without that in the viewpoint, I, I don't think that it's a lot harder work to make that happen. Yeah. And, and that that is also a big part of why not just this interview, but the interviews as a whole were something that I wanted to include because they are more, you know, the, the bulk of the book is very much about ideas and, and what are you thinking about God? Certainly there there are things that, that influence how we're going to be living. Um, but the, the general focus is, is what are you thinking about God? Whereas in these interviews, being able to talk to people who are, you know, alive right now, doing their faith in, you know, very different ways, maybe from what we're doing and also from each other. Um, it, it has that little bit more, um, like outward or, or practical praxis focus. And I think is, is very important not to lose, even when we're talking about theology. Would you say uh, that theology, because that's a lot of what's going on is, like you mentioned just now, is how we, how we talk about God and how we think about God and how we act as a result. Would you say that its theology is a very conversational kind of, kind of reality? I think it, it can be. I don't think it always is. Um, and that's for a lot of reasons. I, I think as much as the, the Protestant Reformation, you know, 
had the ideas of, of bringing the theology down among the people. And, you know, we're all going to talk about this. We're all going to read the Bible now. It's just going to be the monks or whoever up in their monasteries. Um, we don't necessarily do that very often or very well. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar, familiar with uh, Jonathan Merritt's new book, Learning to Speak, Speak God from Scratch. Um, he commissioned a, a survey as part of that, and I don't remember all the details but or the exact numbers, but one of the questions he asked was how recently or how often respondents had had a spiritual conversation. Um, like, had they talked about anything, you know, theology adjacent even, um, and it was very low numbers, like 10% or something on a monthly basis. And I, this is all just from my memory, but it was low, even among churchgoers, even among people who would describe themselves as committed Christians, people just aren't really talking about, about theological stuff very often. And is that, because what I noticed too is, and it's hard not to make this connection, is there's a, there's a parallel between our ability to have theological conversations that take in multiple perspectives and also our ability to have cultural, personal, and political conversations that take in both perspectives. Uh, being able to see, you know, so we're, we're interrogating our impulses, but part of wisdom in conversation is being able to see and understand and maybe even empathize with the impulses of others. So... You know, the, the the war of you're not an it's not that you're an idiot or that you're evil. It's you have the same drives, desires that I do. Uh, let's talk about that. Let's figure that out. So do you feel like it's when it comes to these conversations about baptism and is it a theological hang up that we don't that causes us not to have these conversations? Or is there something else that that's pushing us away from these very important dialogues. Yeah, it's hard to say because I never really know how to judge is the way that we are now really, really unique. Like were, were people really better about doing this in the past? I, I don't know. You, you always have people bemoaning, you know, things are so much worse now. People are so much less polite. Well, people are so much less willing to talk to different people, but uh, well, I don't know. So tell true. the story, you tell a story in the book about graffiti that one to me, because there were two parties that were. Oh yeah. I, I, people need to hear that. I think that sums it up. So from like I I believe, and it's been a long time since my church history class. I believe that it was in Carthage, um, so North Africa, in like you know the two hundreds, three hundreds, the time when they're having all the big Christological debates of, you know, how to exactly to explain Jesus' nature. Is he fully God? Is he fully man? This sort of stuff. Um, and I think it was um, the controversy. There, there were groups of people. They were on different sides of this, Christians on different sides of this, um, as this argument was still going on. And they were having, you know, church councils and things. And these people would get together in gangs and they would roam around Carthage making graffiti and singing songs about why, what, like mocking songs about why their view of Jesus was correct and why they properly understood Jesus' true nature. Um, and yeah, I, I, I guess it's progress <laughs> that we're not like, you know, the, the Calvinists and the Arminians aren't out there like spray painting each other's houses. I, no, I feel like now um, that we have Twitter, that makes it a lot easier. <laughs> 
it's, it's basically the same. <laughs> um, oh, man. So back to your original question, which was about <laughs> engaging with other viewpoints more generally. What was the specific yeah, question? Whether, whether it was a theological issue that was driving us apart on these conversations, whether there was something more oh, going on. Oh, sure. Yeah. So I think some of it is, you know, just how we are. And as I was saying, it's, it's not maybe as historically unique as we sometimes complain that it is. Um, I do think though, that there, it's a theological issue in the sense that we do not know the, uh, importance and implications of our own beliefs. We have not thought through that well. And so to go back to the sort of the concentric circles model, um, we, we don't operate in that way very often. We sort of just level everything. We say it's all equally important. Everything depends, sort of like a house of cards, everything depends on different parts. Like it, if you take out one card, everything will crumble. And so that makes it very difficult to discuss theology well because we don't want everything to crumble and we don't know how we haven't like really thought through, you know, is my view on um, say baptism, is that of the same level of importance as my view on, you know, the providence of God and, or God's sovereignty, how these things work. Um, and so because we haven't taken the time or, or maybe we, you know, we might not even be aware that this is something that, that we need to think about. Um, but because we think of everything, we sort of level the playing field. Everything is of equal importance. Everything needs to be equally defended. It becomes very high stakes and very difficult to have a good conversation because it feels so threatening and so risky that if we change our mind on one thing, the rest might just come crashing down. And you don't want to lose your faith. You don't want things to come crashing down. So it's like, you know what, just lock it all in. No debate. We're, we just we just have the truth and that's yeah. it. Do you, do you sense that though there is a stage at which that kind of mentality could be helpful or is it con or is it for the most part a really destructive place to eventually i mean is it an overall an aggregate kind of thing where over time that just yeah. becomes i think that you do want a degree of confidence in your faith right especially about those core issues and so in that sense i think that that confidence and that sense of um, stability and safety that that can bring is a good thing. But I think that the sort of the broad, like long-term picture of, of where you have like the, in, in another sense, it's very fragile. Um, it's because everything is so dependent. It, it makes it very difficult to process new challenges in a healthy way, to take in new information in a healthy way, to encounter different perspectives. Um, and so for a short time, you might be okay, but it's not, you, you can't avoid new perspectives and new information anymore. Like, especially if you're on the internet or whatever, it, it's not, you can't be isolated, stay in that bubble forever. And so eventually I think uh, negative consequences will appear. Is there a, is there a story, uh, an experience that you've had since the book came out that really for you characterizes something you expected or something you didn't expect? Has there been a piece of feedback or maybe even a piece of pushback that you, you would point to and go, this is, I wasn't expecting this, or this is kind of what I hoped was going to happen. Yeah. I think the main thing I would say is, um, the, 
the title, the reactions to the title have been really interesting. It's sort of been like a, a Rorschach test um, in that the reactions that people have to the word flexible is can be very revealing of sort of where they are with their faith and how they think about it um, and whether they are whether they do have sort of that more fragile like house of cards model um because i think for people who who feel that that danger of you know everything will be taken away if i change my mind on one thing the idea of a flexible faith you know flexible is a an interesting word it can be good or bad they hear it in a very negative sense of like unmoored groundless you know not confident in god not confident in who God is or, or how God relates to us. Whereas for people who maybe are going through a, a season of spiritual crisis or have, have gone through that in the past and are, you know, now beyond that, they tend to hear flexible much more positively of like, you know, something that can, can bend in a good way when it needs to bend something that um, is not, uh, not groundless, but, but has a certain degree of, of space in it and, and, um, ability to accommodate changes. Do you feel like, uh, do you feel like this, uh, this experience, the book, the journey of writing it, what you've heard from people, has it been what you, has it been what you had hoped? Yeah, I think so. For the, for the most part, um, you know, I always, joke that for someone who writes about like religion and politics online, I, I don't get much hate mail. Um, I don't know if like there's some, some spam filter somewhere is catching it all. I don't know. Um, and, and that's really been the same with, with the book as well. Uh, the, the responses that I've gotten have been really significantly positive and encouraging. Uh, and I, um, I mean, I, I hope that continues. I think I was sort of uh, a little worried that um, maybe, you know, Calvinists are very well organized on the internet. <laughs> um, they, they, you know, have a lot of books and podcasts and, and I, I admire this aspect of, you know, sort of the, the rigorous theology discussion. And I, I did have a thought of like, maybe the Calvinists will come for me. That's, maybe a, I, that's I, like, the tweet I, of the day right there. <laughs> Like if I didn't explain things right, John Piper is going to farewell me or something. Um, but no, I, there, there really hasn't, the reactions have been positive and I, I, I take that as a good thing and I um, hope that continues, I guess. <laughs> well, it's, it is a good and helpful book and it's, it is good that it exists and it's in the world and that people w- got to hear from you today, but also they'll get a chance to to walk through some, what I think are, I mean, you didn't shy away from issues that could have been easier just to leave unspoken. Um, I think, I think of the chapter on the atonement. Um, most people just need to know, just want to know that Jesus did something for me and that it, everything's fine. And let's not get into why or how or the implications for the character of God. And you didn't leave that alone. And I, I appreciate that because we think we don't realize how interconnected our theology is and how um i use this word in the best sense how unoriginal it is it's not as if we're re- reinventing the wheel uh, over and over again we're it's variations on a theme so thank you for writing thank you. it 
<clears throat> Thank you. And I, I always think the, the atonement chapter is one of the most important in the book um, because it's something that, you know, with many, many of the others, we may not be familiar with all of the different perspectives, but we're sort of aware that there's a disagreement or there's a debate. With atonement, it seems like it's like down a black hole sometimes. Like we don't even talk about that there are these different perspectives. And so like for me personally, learning about the different viewpoints for the first time, it was like there was this huge gap that had been filled in. It was like, oh, like some of these other theological like issues make so much more sense now. There was this whole question that wasn't being addressed and that I didn't even realize was a question. Um, so yeah, that that chapter, I think, uh, you know, if I have to point people to, to anyone, that would be like the one I'd be like, you need to read this and think this through. And because it's so core to the Christian story and yet we're, we're silent on it so often. Yeah. Well, hey, thanks for taking the time to talk today. And uh, I'm, I'm going to, I know that people are going to benefit from hearing this, but also from, um, from reading. So we're, we'll, I'll put links and things to your book and everything in the, in the notes, but I appreciate you being here. Wonderful. And yeah, thank you so much. I'm, I'm glad we finally made this happen. This conversation with Bonnie is so important. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope that it was uh, something that answered some questions or um, asked some new questions that you hadn't asked yet. I think this idea that our our faith, the history of Christian faith, is actually a lot more flexible, to use her word, than maybe we thought is something that's important to focus on because one, it it will bring us together. There's unity when we realize there's space in the room for all kinds of different perspectives, but there's also a sense of belonging and and confidence when we say, okay, here are the things that matter most and here are the things that uh, don't matter so much. Uh, thank you all for listening to the the Otherwise podcast. Thanks for uh, tuning into this episode. If you stream, thank you for doing that. If you don't, if you subscribe, you listen on iTunes or uh, Google Play, thank you for doing that. If you wouldn't mind giving a rating to the podcast, that would be fantastic. I appreciate that. Also, um, my next book is going to be available soon. Uh, Keep an eye out for that on Amazon. It's called As I Recall. Um, Bonnie Christian is a writer, and she writes for not only – she's written for Time Magazine, CNN, Politico, The Hill. She's written for Relevant Magazine, The American Conservative. Uh, She has an MA in Christian Thought and is looking for PhD work right now in the field of ethics. Her book is called Flexible Faith. And you can find that in the link I provide in the show notes or also on Amazon. So uh, I hope this finds you well and you're going to go into this week with a new picture of how to ask questions and talk about your faith. And until next time, be well, live wisely. Peace, friends. Peace, friends.